two chapter one part one of the octopus by frank norris this librivox recording is in the public domain in his office at san francisco seated before a massive desk of polished redwood very ornate lyman derrick sat dictating letters to his typewriter on a certain morning early in the spring of the year the subdued monotone of his voice proceeded evenly from sentence to sentence regular precise business-like i have the honor to acknowledge herewith your favor of the fourteenth instant and in reply would state please find enclosed draft upon new orleans to be applied as per our understanding in answer to your favor number eleven o seven referring to the case of the city and county of san francisco against excelsior warehouse and storage company i would say his voice continued expressionless measured distinct while he spoke, he swung slowly back and forth in his leather swivel chair, his elbows resting on the arms, his pop eyes fixed vaguely upon the calendar on the opposite wall, winking at intervals when he paused, searching for a word. "'That's all for the present,' he said at length. Without reply, the typewriter rose and withdrew, thrusting her pencil into the coil of her hair, closing the door behind her softly, discreetly. When she had gone, Lyman rose, stretching himself, putting up three fingers to hide his yawn. To further loosen his muscles, he took a couple of turns the length of the room, noting with satisfaction its fine appointments, the padded red carpet, the dull olive-green tint of the walls, the few choice engravings, portraits of Marshall, Taney, Field, and a colored lithograph, excellently done, of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado the deep-seated leather chairs, the large and crowded bookcase, topped with a bust of James Lick, and a huge greenish globe. The waste-basket of woven-colored grass made by Navajo Indians, the massive silver inkstand on the desk, the elaborate filing cabinet complete in every particular, and the shelves of tin boxes, padlocked, impressive, grave, bearing the names of clients, cases, and estates. He was between thirty-one and thirty-five years of age. Unlike Harron, he resembled his mother, but he was much darker than Annie Derrick, and his eyes were much fuller, the eyeball protruding, giving him a pop-eyed foreign expression, quite unusual and unexpected. His hair was black, and he wore a small, tight, pointed moustache, which he was in the habit of pushing delicately upward from the corners of his lips with the ball of his thumb, the little finger extended. As often as he made this gesture, he prefaced it with a little twisting gesture of the forearm in order to bring his cuff into view, and, in fact, this movement by itself was habitual. He was dressed carefully, his trousers creased, a pink rose in his lapel. His shoes were of patent leather, his cutaway coat was a very rough black cheviot, his double-breasted waistcoat of tan-covered cloth with buttons of smoked pearl. An ascot scarf, a great puff of heavy black silk, was at his neck, the knot transfixed by a tiny golden pin set off with an opal and four small diamonds. At one end of the room were two great windows of plate glass, and pausing at length before one of these, Lyman selected a cigarette from his curved box of oxidized silver, lit it, and stood looking down and out, willing to be idle for a moment, amused and interested in the view. 
His office was on the tenth floor of the exchange building, a beautiful tower-like affair of white stone that stood on the corner of Market Street near its intersection with Kearney, the most imposing office building of the city. Below him the city swarmed tumultuous through its grooves, the cable cars starting and stopping with a gay jangling of bells and a strident whirring of jostled glass windows. Drays and carts clattered over the cobbles, and an incessant shuffling of thousands of feet rose from the pavement. Around Lotus Fountain the baskets of the flower-sellers crammed with chrysanthemums, violets, pinks, roses, lilies, hyacinths, set a brisk note of color in the gray of the street. But to Lyman's notion, the general impression of this center of the city's life was not one of strenuous business activity. It was a continuous interest in small things, a people ever willing to be amused at trifles, refusing to consider serious matters, good-natured, allowing themselves to be imposed upon, taking life easily, generous, companionable, enthusiastic, living as it were from day to day in a place where the luxuries of life were had without effort in a city that offered to consideration the restlessness of a New York without its earnestness, the serenity of a Naples without its languor, the romance of a Seville without its picturesqueness. As Lyman turned from the window about to resume his work, the office boy appeared at the door. "'The man from the lithograph company, sir,' announced the boy. "'Well, well, what does he want?' demanded Lyman, adding, however, upon the instant. "'Show him in.' A young man entered, carrying a great bundle, which he deposited on a chair with a gasp of relief, exclaiming all out of breath, "'From the Standard Lithograph Company.' "'What is it?' "'I don't know,' replied the other. "'Maps, I guess.' "'I don't want any maps. Who sent them? I guess you're mistaken.' Lyman tore the cover from the top of the package, drawing out one of a great many huge sheets of white paper, folded eight times. Suddenly he uttered an exclamation. "'Ah, I see. These are maps. But these should not have come here. They are to go to the regular office for distribution.' He wrote a new direction on the label of the package. "'Take them to that address,' he went on. "'I'll keep this one here. The others go to that address. If you see Mr. Darrell, tell him—' that Mr. Derrick, you get the name, Mr. Derrick may not be able to get around this afternoon, but uh, to go ahead with any business just the same. The young man departed with the package, and Lyman, spreading out the map upon the table, remained for some time, studying it thoughtfully. It was a commissioner's official railway map of the state of California, completed to March 30th of that year. Upon it the different railways of the state were accurately plotted in various colors, blue, green, yellow. However, the blue, the yellow, and the green were but brief traceries, very short, isolated, unimportant. At a little distance these could hardly be seen. The whole map was gridironed with a vast, complicated network of red lines, marked P and SWRR. These centralized at San Francisco and thence ramified and spread north, east, and south to every quarter of the state, from Coles in the topmost corner of the map to Yuma in the lowest, from Reno on one side to San Francisco on the other, ran the plexus of red, a veritable system of blood circulation, complicated, dividing and reuniting, branching, splitting, extending, throwing out feelers, offshoots, taproots, feeders, 
diminutive little bloodsuckers that shot out from the main jugular and went twisting up into some remote county, laying hold upon some forgotten village or town, involving it in one of a myriad branching coils, one of a hundred tentacles, drawing it, as it were, toward that center from which all this system sprang. The map was white, and it seemed as if all color which should have gone to vivify the various counties, towns, and cities marked upon it had been absorbed by that huge, sprawling organism, with its ruddy arteries converging to a central point. It was as though the state had been sucked white and colorless, and against this pallid background the red arteries of the monster stood out, swollen with life-blood, reaching out to infinity, gorged to bursting an excrescence, a gigantic parasite fattening upon the life-blood of an entire commonwealth. However, in an upper corner of the map appeared the names of the three new commissioners, Jones McNish for the first district, Lyman Derrick for the second, and James Darrell for the third. Nominated in the Democratic State Convention in the fall of the preceding year, Lyman, backed by the coteries of San Francisco bosses in the pay of his father's political committee of ranchers, had been elected together with Darrell, the candidate of the Pueblo and Mojave Road, and McNish, the avowed candidate of the Pacific and Southwestern. Darrell was rabidly against the P&SW, McNish rabidly for it. Lyman was supposed to be the conservative member of the board, the rancher's candidate, it was true, and faithful to their interests, but a calm man, deliberative, swayed by no such violent emotions as his colleagues. Osterman's dexterity had at last succeeded in entangling Magnus inextricably in the new politics. The famous League, organized in the heat of passion the night of Annixter's barn dance, had been consolidated all through the winter months. Its executive committee, of which Magnus was chairman, had been, through Osterman's manipulation, merged into the old committee composed of Broderson, Annixter, and himself. Promptly thereat, he had resigned the chairmanship of this committee, thus leaving Magnus at its head. Precisely as Osterman had planned, Magnus was now one of them. The new committee, accordingly, had two objects in view— to resist the attempted grabbing of their lands by the railroad, and to push forward their own secret scheme of electing a board of railroad commissioners who should regulate wheat rates so as to favor the ranchers of the San Joaquin. The land cases were promptly taken to the courts, and the new grading, fixing the price of the lands at twenty and thirty dollars an acre instead of two, bitterly and stubbornly fought. But delays occurred, the process of the law was interminable, and in the intervals the committee addressed itself to the work of seating the Ranchers' Commission, as the projected Board of Commissioners came to be called. It was Harron who first suggested that his brother Lyman be put forward as the candidate for this district. At once the proposition had a great success. Lyman seemed made for the place. While allied by every tie of blood to the ranching interests, he had never been identified with them. He was city-bred. The railroad would not be over-suspicious of him. He was a good lawyer, a good businessman, keen, clear-headed, far-sighted, had already some practical knowledge of politics, having served a term as assistant district attorney, and even at the present moment occupying the position of sheriff's attorney. More than all, he was the son of Magnus Derrick. He could be relied upon, could be trusted implicitly to remain loyal to the rancher's cause. 
The campaign for railroad commissioner had been very interesting. At the very outset Magnus's committee found itself involved in corrupt politics. The primaries had to be captured at all costs and by any means, and when the convention assembled it was found necessary to buy outright the votes of certain delegates. The campaign fund, raised by contributions from Magnus, Annixter, Broderson, and Osterman, was drawn up to the extent of $5,000. Only the committee knew of this corruption. The League, ignoring ways and means, supposed as a matter of course that the campaign was honorably conducted. For a whole week after the consummation of this part of the deal, Magnus had kept to his house, refusing to be seen, alleging that he was ill, which was not far from the truth. The shame of the business, the loathing of what he had done, were to him things unspeakable. He could no longer look Harran in the face. He began a course of deception with his wife. More than once he had resolved to break with the whole affair, resigning his position, allowing the others to proceed without him. But now it was too late. He was pledged. He had joined the League. He was its chief, and his defection might mean its disintegration at the very time when it needed all its strength to fight the land cases. More than a mere deal in bad politics was involved. There was the land grab. His withdrawal from an unholy cause would mean the weakening, perhaps the collapse, of another cause which he believed to be righteous as truth itself. He was hopelessly caught in the mesh. Wrong seemed indissolubly knitted into the texture of right. He was blinded, dizzied, overwhelmed, caught in the current of events, and hurried along he knew not where. He resigned himself. In the end, and after much ostentatious opposition on the part of the railroad healers, Lyman was nominated and subsequently elected. When this consummation was reached, Magnus, Osterman, Broderson, and Annixter stared at each other. Their wildest hopes had not dared to fix themselves upon so easy a victory as this. It was not believable that the corporation would allow itself to be fooled so easily, would rush open-eyed into the trap. How had it happened? Osterman, however, threw his hat into the air with wild whoops of delight. Old Broderson permitted himself a feeble cheer. Even Magnus beamed satisfaction. The other members of the League, present at the time, shook hands all around and spoke of opening a few bottles on the strength of the occasion. Annixter alone was recalcitrant. "'It's too easy,' he declared. "'No, I'm, I'm not satisfied.' Where's Shelgrim in all this? Why don't he show his hand, damn his soul? The thing is yellow, I tell you. There's a big fish in these waters somewhere, so I don't know his name and I don't know his game. But he's moving, round, off, and on, just out of sight. If you think you've netted him, I don't. That's all I've got to say. But he was jeered down as a croaker. There was the commission. He couldn't get around that, could he? There was Darrell and Lyman Derrick, both pledged to the ranches. Good Lord, he was never satisfied. He'd be obstinate till the very last gun was fired. Why, if he got drowned in a river, he'd float upstream, just to be contrary. In the course of time, the new board was seated. For the first few months of its term, it was occupied in cleaning up the business left over by the old board, and in the completion of the railway map. But now the decks were cleared. 
It was about to address itself to the consideration of a revision of the tariff for the carriage of grain between the San Joaquin Valley and Tidewater. Both Lyman and Darrell were pledged to an average 10% cut of the grain rates throughout the entire state. The typewriter returned with the letters for Lyman to sign, and he put away the map and took up his morning's routine of business, wondering the while what would become of uh, his practice during the time he was involved in the business of the Rancher's Railroad Commission. But toward noon, at the moment when Lyman was drawing off a glass of mineral water from the siphon that stood at his elbow, there was an interruption. Someone rapped vigorously upon the door, which was immediately after opened, and Magnus and Harran came in, followed by Presley. "'Hello! Hello!' cried Lyman, jumping up, extending his hands. "'Why, here's a surprise. I didn't expect you all till tonight. Come in, come in and sit down. Have a glass of water, Governor.' The others explained that they had come up from Bonneville the night before, as the executive committee of the League had received a dispatch from the lawyers it had retained to fight the railroad, that the judge of the court in San Francisco, where the test cases were being tried, might be expected to hand down his decision the next day. Very soon after the announcement of the new grading of the rancher's lands, the corporation had offered, through S. Behrman, to lease the disputed lands to the ranchers at a nominal figure. The offer had been angrily rejected, and the railroad had put up the lands for sale at Ruggles' office in Bonneville. At the exorbitant price named, buyers promptly appeared, dummy buyers beyond shadow of a doubt, acting either for the railroad or for S. Behrman, men hitherto unknown in the county, men without property, without money, adventurers, healers, prominent among them, and bidding for the railroad's holdings included on Annixter's ranch, was... Delaney. The farce of deeding the corporation's sections to these fictitious purchasers was solemnly gone through with at Ruggles' office, the railroad guaranteeing them possession. The League refused to allow the supposed buyers to come upon the land, and the railroad, faithful to its pledge in the matter of guaranteeing its dummies' possession, at once began suits in ejectment in the district court in Visalia, the county seat. It was the preliminary skirmish, the reconnaissance in force, the combatants feeling each other's strength, willing to proceed with caution, postponing the actual death-grip for a while, till each had strengthened its position and organized its forces. End of Book Two, Chapter One, Part One